Well, this morning, I got called a trendsetter, which I don't really understand because my shoes really ain't that special. They're pretty, anyway. Oh, man. Actually, you know, I didn't. What happened was, you know, like that, uh, that, that lazy uh, cobbler that couldn't make his own shoes and so the elves had to come do it? I just woke up and there it was. So, oh, man. We could really get, we're, we're, I can tell that, like, when you get close to a cliff and then, like, get into that place of where, like, you know you shouldn't look over, but you kind of want to look over, and we're there. I can feel, the, like, the, the, a little bit of sandstone crumbling. So we're, let me pull it back a little bit. And um, maybe we should, let's just pray right now, and then we'll start. So Holy Spirit, would you just come and be with us? I pray that, that you would, would fill this place with your peace. I pray that we could recognize that, that we have your peace because of your presence. And so, Lord, as we experience your peace, I pray that you would also bring to mind all of the places where peace is lacking. And I pray that you would prompt us to give that over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in our second week of Advent. We are in the week of peace. Beginning last week with hope, we move closer to the day of fulfilled expectation that is Christmas. The Advent season, the season of waiting, is also something that that we can reclaim from our material culture. Now, the material culture has created an advent, a different kind of advent. And I'm going to say on the front end, I'm not going to bash Santa Claus. I'm going to kind of bash Santa Claus. But, yeah, I might actually bash Santa Claus. Um, But this is one thing, you know, this is also um, one of the things in, in my house when I knew that my kids understood what was going on. Uh, my eldest twin, uh, Emma, uh, came to me and said, um, Dad, we shouldn't leave milk and cookies for Santa anymore because that's not what he really wants. Like, oh, well, what does he really want? She said, well, whiskey and salami. <laughs> like, <laughs> the kid gets it. I mean, and in that moment I knew, I knew that she knew, and then we, you were moving forward in this new revelation, and, and from then on, um, Santa was well served. Um, and that's also the beginning of us in our family referring to salami as meat cookie, which is weird. So, okay, back to uh, the, the, the issues at hand here. The material culture, the, the, our material culture has created an advent, and one that kids all over the world engage in. One that, that from the perspective of Ralphie Parker, who lives on Cleveland Street in Holman, Indiana, reminded us that the whole kid calendar revolves around this advent. Are you seriously, you don't know what I'm talking about? I just dropped a Christmas store. Thank you. All right, I appreciate it. Sometimes I just need an acknowledgement. 
it helps me. It's like, like my need for affirmation. I just, I need to know that we're on the same page. But the Christmas story, it begins with the recognition that, that the whole kid calendar revolves around Christmas, which for me was very true. The coming of Christmas, and with it, the coming of Santa Claus, it, and, and presents, and fulfilled wishes, becomes an advent. Now, because our holiday posture often is informed by childhood experiences, it makes sense that this anticipation, the buildup as a community prepares, would impact us as we wait for wishes fulfilled. This is what we see happening in the culture around us. The advent, um, the, the waiting, the expectation of something to come, and what comes is the fulfillment of wishes, the fulfillment of, of, of getting what we ask for, of stuff, of stuff. Now, this isn't necessarily an attack on Santa, as I said before. I'm not calling for the canceling of Santa. But when I think of my childhood, I, I know also that, that I'm blessed because Christmas for me is, is so memorable. Because, I mean, so miserable now that, that sometimes it gives my wife fits. Sometimes it gives you fits, especially when we celebrate it in July and we start counting down the Christmas decorating party in August. But anyway, this is, all of that is a product of my childhood. My grandfather was the master of Christmas. The experience that he created for us was, was unreal. It got to the place where when, when the leaves would start to change in the fall, you know, we'd be back in school and the leaves would start to change and all that stuff, I would start to get giddy because I knew what was coming, because I, I, was, I, I knew that, that what my grandfather was, was, was going to do was going to be amazing, but he created an atmosphere. Now, in fairness, you know, my, my grandmother did, like, like, for the family, she did the cooking and the baking and all, like, she did a lot of the heavy lifting for it, but the atmosphere was created by my grandfather, and it created this advent in me where, like, the expectation, this waiting for this, this thing that was going to come. I was giddy from the, like, the first like, like little tinge of like brown around the green of a leaf. I was giddy for the rest of the fall, getting ready. Like Thanksgiving would come and go in a flash. And it was like, for me, it was like, let's get that out of the way so we can get to the real thing, Christmas. And then that would lead to a crushing, crashing depression on December 26th. The longest period of time, that day that marks the most amount of time between me and the next Christmas. I was adventing. Now, I think about also the story of Santa, the evolution of secular culture as it relates to Advent, and it can be a vehicle for context, a context that can help us understand what we're truly waiting for. Now, just as secular culture and self-centered materialism corrupted Advent, gave us another thing to Advent on, we can corrupt secular culture by reintroducing the reality of receiving the blessing of the Prince of Peace. St. Nicholas of Myra is an interesting man to study. He's an interesting man to study because mostly there isn't much in the way of evidence 
that could make either the legends of St. Nicholas defensible from an academic point of view, or really there's no way to disprove that he even existed, that there, you know, we don't really know. We, we know likely there was a, a dude named St. Nicholas of, of Myra, uh, but by the standards of historical inquiry, we can't prove much more than the fact that the legends exist and that he probably did too. He was likely the bishop of Myra, probably comes out of the church of Antioch, and this is all what is now uh, present-day Turkey. Um, that just made me think back to the holiday. Like, I just went into Christmas turkey. I, this is how much it gets into my, my thinking. It, it is consuming, like I will with the turkey. Anyway, the bishop of, of Myra in what is now Turkey, um, legend has it that he was orphaned as a kid, but as he was orphaned, he was left with great wealth. Now, this is an interesting thing, because if you think about like how old he must have been orphaned, I mean, he was old enough at least to defend the fact that he had a lot of money. You know, he wasn't, uh, it wasn't taken from him, um, so he probably, we're probably not talking about like a seven-year-old, we're probably talking about somebody that is close to their majority, but I- at any rate, he is orphaned, he has nobody, he is alone, and he has a lot of wealth. Now, one legend that, that knows, that, that leads us to what we know as, as the, the Saint Nick, the, the Santa Claus legend, is that, uh, that in this, this town, in this village, uh, there was a poor family that were about to, uh, I mean, they were to the place where their poverty was, uh, was about to, to basically end the family. This was a family, uh, a married couple that had three daughters. And they had gotten to the place where the only way for the individuals in the family to survive was if they sold the daughters into slavery. And so they were driven to this reality. And this is not, we're not talking about, about like a, a, a fantastic story. This is not out of the realm of possibility. In fact, this is actually the way slavery worked in, in the ancient world. This was a, a response to poverty, and, and it wasn't like the slavery that we would understand of, of the opening of the Atlantic world. But it still was going to end the family as the kids are sold into slavery. It still is a tragedy. It still is. I mean, if you can imagine being in the place where, where the proof of your love for your spouse must be sold in order for everyone to survive. Placing ourselves into that context, this is, this is tragic. And, and, and even just saying the word tragic, it doesn't go far enough for the emotion of this moment. So, this poor family is getting ready to sell their, their daughters into slavery. And so the night before, they wash their clothes, and they get them ready to take them to where they can go and, and, and sell their daughters into slavery. And so after they've washed their clothes to get ready, they take their, their socks, and they hang them over the fire so they can dry. And then they all go to bed. The legend is that that night, because he was aware of what was happening— St. Nicholas, um, broken entered, which is just what he does, right? Um, he, he, he broke into their house, and he put enough gold in the socks to make it to where the kids didn't have to be sold into slavery. And so this legend is that before these girls are sold into slavery, and all of the things that that might mean. They're saved through the generosity of someone in their community. 
This led to a tradition that the night before St. Before Nicholas Day, which is December 6th, socks would be left overnight and gifts would be put in them in the name of St. Nicholas. Now, a lot of times these gifts were to help the poor survive or they would be to, to help those that are in poverty move out of poverty in, um, in reflection of, the, of this story. And from there, the legends grow into what we now know as Santa Claus. And, and also, as the legend grows, it gets totally robbed of, of, I mean, it's devoid of a connection to Jesus. It's no longer a reflection of, of the love that the church has for, for those in the community. It becomes something other. Santa now gives in response to like some kind of a naughty or niceness scale and also gives to support the retail commercialism that tells kids that they need more. But back to not canceling Santa. Attempts have been made to cancel Santa. Um, after the Reformation, one of them was Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther attempted to, and that's maybe not fair. I, I like to give Martin Luther a, a, a ribbing every now and then. Um, but he attempted to bring the focus back to Jesus by changing the name of the gift giver from St. Nicholas to the Christ child, or in German, Christkindl. Which then secular culture stole back and it became Chris Kringle, another name for Santa Claus. And so the attempt has been made in the past to try to bring back the advent to Jesus. And what we see here is that this is evidence of a spiritual battle. This is evidence that the real war on Christmas is truly a war against God. It's a war against peace. It's a war against the knowledge of the Savior of the world. This war works hard to rob the reality of God and replace it with the trappings of a counterfeit culture. The blessing that's offered by the Advent season is not fulfilling wishes. It's not getting a reward for being good. Praise God for that. Or having all the stuff that advertisers tell us that we need in order to be happy, the blessing, the gift that we receive is the afterglow of salvation that we know as peace. Now, even if that origin story of, of St. Nick is hyperbole, maybe it's just legend, maybe it's just the creative output of an ancient storyteller. We have an event that can lead us to the receiving of the blessing of the Prince of Peace. Because we can imagine being those parents. We can imagine the devastation of knowing that we have to sell a child. We can imagine that, that soul-crushing experience. We can imagine the tragedy of having a child taken just so the child can survive. We can imagine that. And then comes a savior. Charles Spurgeon said this, when the newborn king made his appearance, 
the swaddling band which, with which he was wrapped up, was the white flag of peace. That manger was the place where the treaty was signed, whereby warfare would be stopped between man's conscience and himself, and between man's conscience and his God. One commonality in all of the world is that we search for peace, because peace is the outcome of secured survival. Scripture teaches that the peace is only found in God, but people try to find it elsewhere. They try to find it anywhere else but God. A person's desire for peace also varies according to their circumstances and is often tied to comfort. Peace, though, and comfort are not the same. Comfort is a counterfeit peace but it's effective in creating an illusion. There are places even that we can see in Scripture where humanity has searched for peace. One is searching for peace in others rather than God searching for peace in others. We see this in Genesis 5, 28 and 29. When Lamech was 182 years old, he became the father of a son. Lemek named his son Noah, for he said, May he bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. This is placing the desire for peace into the work of Noah. And we know that Noah, apart from God, really couldn't do anything. We know that that Noah, even towards the the end of his life, was still, I mean, he was the one that we have, like, a a story of him getting drunk and passing out and and having his sons make fun of him. I mean, this is not... He has no ability to bring any kind of peace. But his family line looked to him for peace. This happens with the entire nation of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old. Your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request, and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. The entire nation of Israel looking for peace in in someone other than God. This is not new to history. This isn't new when we step outside and we see it in our culture. People are looking for peace in others. People also search for peace in material possession. And this is probably tied a little bit into that comfort as well, that assured survival. Ecclesiastes 4.8 says, This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, Who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It is all so meaningless and depressing. It's one of those fun verses. (laughs) 
parable of the, re- the rich fool, captured in, in Luke 12, points to this as well. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with him, with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have any room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all of, of my wheat and other goods. Then I'll sit back to say, and say to myself, my friend, you have, stored enough, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything that you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. What if peace wasn't something that we searched for? Not something that we were able to achieve? What if it it isn't any of those things? What if peace was given as a gift? What if peace was something for us to receive? God's ultimate provision of peace is not discovered in how hard we can work, how much we can store away, or how much we can trust somebody else. God's provision of peace is discovered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is only through Christ, that peace with God can be achieved and maintained. Romans 5.1, Paul wrote, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. This is what Advent is about, receiving the gift that leads to peace. This is about adventing the Savior of the world. Luke chapter 2, Starting in verse 10, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This moment fulfills Old Testament prophecy. This moment, this one that Charles Spurgeon talked about, that is that signing of, of, of a truce between us and our conscience, a signing of a truce between us and our God that leads to peace. This is Old Testament prophecy fulfilled which can't do anything more than increase our peace because it increases our faith. At least six centuries before, Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 9. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. 
He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The, pa- the, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. That's like the best way to end a promise right there. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. And six centuries later, it happens. Zechariah chapter 9, another example of a faith-building prophecy. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey. Riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So peace is promised. Peace promised then becomes peace fulfilled. We see this fulfilled through the teachings of Jesus himself. John chapter 16, 33. I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. What a bringer of peace that reality is. Jesus telling us, I know, I see you. I know. Have peace. I've overcome the world. John 14, 23 through 27, Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and he will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now, that while, now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. I am leaving you with a gift. This is the gift that we receive. Peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. That is worth adventing for. As a demonstration of what Jesus can see and the situations in which Jesus can bring peace. I have the the painting that Rembrandt did of this on the wall of my office here in the building to remind me of this, something I often forget. Even when I'm staring at the painting, I sometimes forget. Mark chapter 4, as evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. Anybody know a fierce storm? High waves were breaking onto the boat. 
It began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciple woke him, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped. There was great calm. And then he asked them, Why were you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the winds and the waves obey him. The bringer of peace in all things. Now, we have to recognize that the peace that we have with God, the peace that we can have with each other, all of this, this is a costly peace. This was a costly peace for God. We receive the gift of peace through Jesus, but also we receive the gift of peace because of Jesus. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, Paul wrote, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood, on the cross. So what we see here is that Advent really isn't just about waiting on Christmas. We also are beginning this several-month party that we get to culminate on April 9th when we celebrate Resurrection Day together. And then we get to be in Advent together even more as we're waiting for Jesus to return. Isaiah 53.5 tells us more about the cost of our peace But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Paul again writes in Galatians chapter 6, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. This gift is a continued presence. This gift of peace is a continued peace. One that that walks beside us in all times. Knowledge of the presence of God gives peace to those that are not threatened by the reality that he has a will for our life. John chapter 14, Jesus says, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him Because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Amen. In Romans 14, Paul writing to the church in Rome, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so peace then What we recognize here is the birthright of every believer in all circumstances. 
is found only in God, and it's maintained through having a close relationship with him that begins in faithful surrender. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. We better believe there is peace in that rest. John chapter 14, 1 1 through 3, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Thomas Akempis says this, the cross is always ready. It awaits you everywhere. No matter where you may go, you cannot escape it, for wherever you go, you take yourself with you and shall always find yourself. Turn where you will, above, below, without, or within, you will find a cross in everything. And everywhere, you must have patience if you would have peace within and merit an eternal crown. As we turn back to worship, this reality allows us to be in Advent with peace as we await the return of the King. We await that day and we await this reality. Our Advent is awaiting what we see in Revelation 22, 3 through 5. No longer will there be a curse upon, uh, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there. No need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. And peace is the blessing we receive this Advent. Amen.